will be in Exodus 2, verses 10 to 17 today. And if you have the chance to have something to write with and on as we go along, it'll be helpful as we find a series of questions within this passage. If you don't right now, I would encourage you to take a few minutes and circle back and give yourself a moment to answer them. So here we go. We're starting in verse 10, which says that when Moses was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Today, we're going to talk about how we live when there's oppression everywhere. This is very much the world that Egypt has created, one where oppression permeates all things. First, when Moses is young, because not only is he threatened by Pharaoh's decree about the boys, he's taken from his own family and disconnected from his identity, something Curtis explored more in depth last week. We all know by now that although adoption is sometimes made to seem like it's always sweet and lovely, especially in this case where he goes with a princess to a palace. In reality, it's extremely difficult as well, complicated at best, traumatic at times. Moses is a victim of this oppressive system at the very beginning of his life. And when we jump to that second scene, we see the oppression of an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, the one we would most expect to see in the Exodus narrative. Of course, Egyptians will oppress Hebrews. Of course, the empire will oppress those it can subjugate. But what I want us to also notice is how in this case, Moses could have stayed out of it. His role in the royal family would give him a valid reason to just let it go. Heck, he probably knew he should stay out of it from that perspective. He could have stayed out of it, but he was compelled to get into it. Because these people were his own. His fellow Hebrews. Our first questions today. When it comes to living in a world where oppression is everywhere, what allows you to stay out of it? What allows you to stay out of it? We're each in a unique situation where we would be able to remove ourselves from some form of oppression or injustice and keep ourselves out of it for some reason or another. Maybe that's about various resources we have or privileges we hold. Maybe that's about the relational world we could fall into. What allows you to stay out of it? And our second question, what compels you to get into it? What compels you to get into it? What kinds of things spark your righteous anger about what's wrong in the world? The way that Moses had his own righteous anger sparked. What kinds of things give you energy and passion to see the world more just? What allows you to stay out of it? What compels you to get into it? Back in early Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel. He's the first to egregiously tear the relational fabric of his family. And then he defends himself by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, you are. We all are. And because we are our brother's keeper, we know we're compelled to get into it. It's kinship. 
Kinship is what knowing that what compels me to get into it isn't some delusion I can save the world or fix everything about this broken system. It's that one of my own is suffering. And no matter who they are, they're one of our own. However, the way Moses gets into it is certainly not the wisest approach. He uses the same tools of the empire, violence, to try to bring about peace. It never works. Not for us, not for Moses, who will then be forced to flee for his life. Which incidentally is a clue that although he does have the protection of the royal family giving him the option to stay out of it, he's clearly not that high ranking in the great royal system. We all know that if he had a little more clout in the whole deal, Pharaoh would probably be inclined to say, hey, I mean, you know, what's a soldier here or there? We can sweep this under the rug. But instead, Pharaoh is after him. A clue that he doesn't quite have the security in the palace that we might imagine. This brings us to our third question. Am I using Egyptian tactics to solve oppressive systems? Of course, you and I are unlikely to be inflicting violence on someone, but we are all likely at times to be drawn to power, coercion, shame, or other tactics that don't bring life, but promise they will in the moment, to try to stand up to the systems of death. A friend of mine once was in an interview situation with the one and only Brene Brown, and they were in a conversation about anti-racism. And so they asked Can it ever be that we use shame as a tactic to fight injustice? If ever there was a cause worth a little bit of shame, it would be continuing to uphold and perpetuate racist systems and ideologies. So could we just maybe like just a little bit of shame, Brene? If anyone's ever going to give us permission to wield a tool of shame, it's certainly her. And she replied that we can't use a tool like shame to garner the change that comes that we would really need when it comes to something like fighting racist ideologies and systems. You can't wield the tool of the empire to bring about wholeness and peace. Instead, people need to be given a chance to be whole themselves and invited into extending that to others. Everyone's shared worthiness can motivate us, but it can't happen through shame. Back to the text. In verse 13, it says, The next day when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight. See, it makes sense that the Egyptian harms the Hebrew. It makes sense that Moses is victimized by Egypt as a Hebrew. But for one Hebrew to harm another, it's startling and disorienting to Moses. And it's an example of what's true in power-wielding, power-hungry systems. They don't just have oppressor and victim. They spawn violence amongst victims at times as well. If you know you can't take your case to anyone in power for help, it often comes out sideways. And sadly, this can become an excuse for the more powerful group to say things like, oh, look at those Hebrews. You know we have to rule over them. Look at how they fight amongst themselves. Look at those people. We can't afford to give them the same rights and resources. They'd waste them. They don't deserve them like we do. We see this in other sorts of ways as well. Last week, Pastor Tim Keller passed away. And as you listen to people talk about the role of his many books 
or his church or his preaching in their lives. There are some things that are undeniably true. He was kind, humble, and loved Jesus very much. Tim Keller was also very involved in the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, an organization who believes that women should be submissive not only in marriage but in all areas of life. The Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood has made my life so much harder as a girl who knew she wanted to be a pastor when she was 12. Their ideas have emboldened people to be unkind. Their ideology being seen as Christian has kept me from job opportunities. And it's not just me. If you know anything about Pomona Valley Church, we have amazing women with amazing gifts. Not just the kind you would expect to see in a church or a ministry, but the kind that leads schools and social sectors and businesses. They're sharp and their partners are supportive of them being exactly who they were meant to be. The Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood has harmed us. Even as I share with Tim Keller a siblinghood in Christ. It's complicated pain. Hebrew to Hebrew. Christ follower to Christ follower. But that's how oppressive systems work. We end up hurting each other. Now in our story, Moses flees. Away from the oppression he goes to Midian where it will all be okay. And verse 15 says that when Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. It's everywhere. Oppression's just everywhere. Above from Pharaoh, inside Hebrew to Hebrew, outside these shepherds. It's inescapable. When Moses first tries to thwart oppression with the tools of the oppressor, he fails. He tries to flee oppression, only to find it in the next place. And then he settles at Midian. And there really isn't much said about his inner life there. I just have to wonder then, how does he process all that happened in his life thus far? What does he make of it? I wonder if Midian is the place where he recovers a bit or if it's the place where he shoves it all down and ignores. When oppression is everywhere, we need to recover, but it's easier to ignore. And of course, Moses won't ignore because God won't ignore, but that's for next week. For now, another question. Have I been ignoring? Do I need to recover? Or re-engage. Everyone has times they need to pull away and recover. It is absolutely necessary for long-haul justice work. And everyone has a time to re-engage. It's not something I or anyone else can ever tell you. It's something you discern along with God's Holy Spirit about the time and place that you are in. The situations you are uniquely positioned to get into it over. And then we come to the final words of the introduction to the story. Years passed and the king of Egypt died. So there's a power vacuum in the empire. And the space is filled with the cries of the Hebrews. Something has changed. Will anything else change? But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning 
and God remembered their covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. These verbs about God's response get paired, actually. God heard and acknowledged his covenant or was mindful of God's covenant. The hearing is more than just turning a sympathetic ear that can go, oh, that must be hard. God was mindful. God can do something. God acknowledges, yes, these cries I hear require my involvement. And then the next pair of verbs is that God saw and took notice. The New Living Translation says God knew it was time to act. So God saw the people and sees indeed the pain that they are suffering. And then God knew it was time to act. These verses here wrap up the introduction to the Exodus story that we've seen in the first two chapters. And the chapters give us the needed background and scene setting to understand all that will come next. We have the situation of the Hebrews suffering under forced labor generation after generation. We have the power of the empire inflicting pain at every turn. We know this Moses will be the key person in what comes next. And most of all, we know that God is primed to respond to the cries of the people. Notice that these were not cries to God, though. Did you catch it? The people did not cry out to God. They simply cried out. But where does a cry of suffering from the oppressed go? But to Yahweh God, who created and loves them. Who is this Yahweh? Yahweh is the God who responds to the cries of the people. Yahweh is the God who keeps their promise. The one who can break through when there is oppression everywhere. Inescapable. And so our final question, do you need to cry out for your own sake or for the sake of your kin? Maybe it's not even a prayer and that's okay. Maybe it's just crying out because the pain is too much. The situation seems impossible. If you had the chance, I'd encourage you to find your way into the Psalms to read some of the cries for justice and action, to listen to the psalmists vent their anger. It not only reminds us how the Hebrews might have been praying, it reminds us we can pray that way too, for ourselves and for others. May you know the God who hears and remembers their covenant, the God who sees and acknowledges it's time to act. Today, this week and always. Amen.